Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Amir. You're most welcome, sir. Hello again. Hello again. Uh, for those who don't remember, Amir holds a BA in Islamic theology and a BA in German linguistics and literature and Islamic religious education from the University of Osnabrück in Germany, where he is. And today I'm in France. So this is a Franco-German production today. <laughs> Um, after completing a master's in Islamic studies and history at the University of Oxford in 2022, he is now pursuing a second master's in comparative literature and critical translation at the same university. His research interests include rational theology, ilm al-Kalam, as it's known in Arabic, German thought, intellectual exchanges between East and West, and the reception of Islamic thought and literature among thinkers of the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment. Today, in part two, we continue discussing Immanuel Kant in the Muslim world and the history of causality. We'll come to that in a second, what that means in East and West. And also Muslim scholarship in conversation with modern European philosophy, with particular focus on the work of noted Muslim thinker, Sheikh al-Islam, Mustafa Sabri Effendi. So, Amir, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, in this hopefully manageable session, uh, I just want to focus on a few points we didn't get talked to in the last session. And we will just finish the philosophical context by understanding the importance of the question of causality and then we'll quickly move on to the historical context by summarizing Sabri's life and times and his major work, which will be also like the reference work of our whole uh, conversation. Uh, um, so in other words, like this second talk should rather be considered as the second part of the first talk so that we can go over to the more philosophical and more systematic discussion in our third round. Right. Um, as for the importance of the question of causality, so we have mentioned a lot of thinkers, a lot of theologians, a lot of philosophers, and the question arises, like, why does causality matter to all of these names um, in the first place? So what's the main problem, so to say? Because everybody drinks water in order to quench his thirst. So the whole topic sounds, at least at the first glance, um, not very reasonable. Mm. Um, but the crux of the matter is that causality is not an observation. Causality is an interpretation. Mm means that we have, like, we always have three pictures. So we have fire and cotton. Cotton comes closer to fire and gets burned. Mm. And we unconsciously um, connect these pictures and say cotton was burned because of fire. Mm. But the only thing we can see is a kind of conjunction, a ma'iyya, as it is called in Arabic, a witness. Our... Our senses can't tell us anything about causality per se. So uh, in other words, like the question of whether things that we can see have a causal efficacy is not an empirical question. It is rather a metaphysical one. Right. And this changes the whole dynamics because 
regardless of which theory one subscribes to, as soon as someone talks about causation, that A is the cause or the reason for B, he goes beyond that what the eye can see. And um, just to give maybe an example, Aristotle famously contends that every physical so uh, object is a compound of non-physical matter and form, right? And it sounds very in intuitive that he says like, every physical object has uh, like uh, an intrinsic nature. So when a seed becomes a tree, it is because of the nature of the seed. It can't become anything else. Hmm. And uh, when fire burns, it is because of the nature of fire. But if we just pause a moment and ask ourselves, from where do you get this nature and this, let's say, combination of matter and form and all of these, let's say, assumptions, he can't or nobody can give us an empirical answer because these things are not empirically validated in the first place. And um, this is actually the reason why Hume, for example, as a radical empiricist, has no concept of causation whatsoever. Mm. So he says there's nothing to be gained to attribute causation to an, let's say, internal factor like nature. And it is also there's also nothing to be gained when you attribute it to an external factor like God. And Hume is just a sharp observer and says, only empirical evidence matters to me. And causality, um, that's obviously uh, like subject to discussion, but causality in the final analysis can't have empirical evidence. So the point is to say that occasionalism is not very intuitive, for example, is not an argument at all because all causal theories at the end of the day are in desperate need of philosophical justification. Mm. Since logically speaking, <clears throat> there is an unbridgeable gap between constant conjunction on the one hand and causation on the other. So one can't just assume that only because one thing starts to exist after the other, one thing comes after the other, it comes because of the other. Because right. so the correlation just... is not the same as cause. Correlation is not the same as cause. The two things are con are juxtaposed or in conjunction with each other, but mm. that doesn't necessarily therefore imply causation. That's a different matter. Um, right. So we just can't equate correlation with causation. Mm. And a famous example is actually um, like in the Middle Ages, people thought that lightning is the cause of thunder, hmm. which makes sense, right? Because we always see lightning first and then the thunder. But modern science tells us, and we don't have to go into its detail, that there is an, let's say, electrical discharge between clouds and so on and so forth, which is to say that the correlation of two things does not amount to a causal relationship. Mm -hmm. And even if we were to say this, namely that effect B is the result of cause A, we still have to ask ourselves other questions. For example, um, is it only because of A? Like, is 
a the only cause of B, or do we have other um, causes as well? For example, divine causation. And another question would be then, what is actually the relationship between them? Mm. Is, is God the one who gives cause A its power, its causal efficacy? Mm. Uh, and if the answer is yes, can he takes it back? Mm. So and if God is even able to take this causal efficacy back, like why should we assume that he has given this power in the first place? As Ghazali says, for example, in his Ihya, like, فَلِمَا لَا يُحَالُ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ أَوَّلِ الْأَمْرِ What prevents us to attribute real causal efficacy directly and solely to God? Like, mm -hmm. is God in need of this chain? That's basically the question at stake. And of course, Al-Ghazali, the great Islamic theologian, he was an occasionalist himself, so he believed... Right. Yeah, okay, just to clarify. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the dominant way of how he was received, and that's the dominant way of how he was understood throughout Islamic history, correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, um, another very important question in this context is obviously the question of um, necessity. So is this connection that we have established between cause A and uh, effect B, is that uh, logically necessary? means is it absurd to say that we won't see the effect as soon as soon as soon as we see the cause is it as absurd to say um like is it as absurd to say um that this won't happen like we say the whole is not greater than its part because the second sentence the second statement we have made is obviously logically inconceivable we can't make a concept out of this and human Sabri will say, as we, uh, as we will see in the third round, that it is always possible to, con to conceive one event without the other, without any contradiction. And therefore, Sabri Effendi concludes from this, it is also logically not inconceivable to see, for ex uh, to believe that Sayyidina Ibrahim, for example, was thrown into the fire without, and, but was not burned. So this understanding has huge implications for scripture and for the interpretation that, that story is about abraham in the quran isn't it it's not found in the in the bible as, as it's in like, yeah in the quran i'm not sure whether it's found in the bible but we no. can also take other like mutual like mutual examples or mutual miracles yeah, the what the source of that story which is in the right the concept like the concept is still the same Yep. namely the concept of miracles. And that's actually the reason why Imam al-Ghazali discusses this very topic, the topic of causality in his famous tahafut, in his famous um, incoherence of, of the philosophers. Mm -hmm. He even says in the beginning like that, that, like that the philosophers, above all, Avicenna, Ibn Sina, um, makes no room for miracles. And therefore he has to basically... Uh, um, refute them on this point. And nine centuries later, interestingly, Mustafa Sabri Effendi engages like in very similar terms with against um, modernists mm. because they also start to interpret miracles away. So there's a like a very similar discussion going on. And I would even say like this topic is timeless. So well, this is the you, you call them modernists, but you, you've just clearly demonstrated these ideas are extremely old and anything but modern. <laughs> and yeah, 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 yeah. Modern, actually, these are very old-fashioned ideas that keep on mm -hmm. recycling themselves. Yeah. Right. 
And it's, as I said, like actually quite timeless. So uh, um, even nowadays, uh, if there is a kind of discussion on this, one has to ask um, maybe his opponent on what basis he's denying miracles if he says so. So because as soon as one says miracles are impossible, he issues a metaphysical judgment. Absolutely. And the reason is like, because like impossibility can not be found in nature. And this mm -hmm. is exactly the discussion that takes place between Sabri Efendi and the empiricists on the other hand, like, uh, like um, Locke and Mill and so on and so forth. He says like empirical evidence can only tell us what is or what has happened, meaning it is retrospective and it is an assertion. But with from empirical evidence, you can't derive what must be, meaning necessity, or what cannot be, meaning impossibility, because this is beyond the scope of empirical science. Yeah, and this is where, this is where uh, you're talking about the philosophy of science is so important in actually and uh, uncovering the assumptions and the metaphysical background, which is perhaps often invisible to uh, at first glance of many of these statements. They're not kind of neutral objective. They come from a, an assumption mm -hmm. about the nature of reality, which the mm -hmm. philosophy of science can make explicit and critique mm -hmm. and open for discussion and, and maybe even to refute. Mm -hmm. And I would say like thus we come closer to our topic because the nature of causality and the causality principle, the principle of sufficient reason is in the center of the discussion. Does it have, does it have empirical elements? Is it purely rational or in Kant's terms a priori? Mm. Um, that's the question at stake. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, I've realized that I haven't recommended anything yet uh, in terms of uh, in terms of literature. There's actually not much scholarship done on Mustafa Sabri Effendi, uh, unfortunately, but um, much less in English actually. But um, one interesting article would be the one by uh, done, written by Faruk Tarzic, a Bosnian scholar, I think, uh, from Pakistan or from the University of Islamabad. He has written uh, an article on prophethood and, and miracles in the understanding of Mustafa Sabri Efendi. That's uh, quite recommendable, I would say. Is that in English or in... That's in English, yeah. That's the only reason why I mentioned okay. it. <laughs> and um, as these kind of like points uh, imply, there's actually hardly any subject in which the question of causality does not play a major role. I mean, when we talk about causality, we are talking about the very way God relates to the world and to us. So therefore, any possible answer pertains to areas like, first and foremost, theology. What does it mean that we have an omnipotent God, that he is also omnipresent and even omniscient, right? And especially since all three monotheistic religions do reject an understanding of a distant God who's not engaged with the world in the first place. A second topic would be ontology, uh, because the question of do things have a causal efficacy or not, meaning or do they have a nature, uh, is an ontological question. Mm -hmm. And epistemology is obviously also like in the equation, because the question of how, like the question is, 
how can we know what the true cause of something is? Mm. And therefore, we are talking about metaphysics, who, which is basically made up of ontology and epistemology. Mm. Uh, um, another question, as we said, is the question of moral philosophy, which we are not going to delve into. But like the, every every causal theory basically deals with the felt freedom of human beings. The Ashira have their CASP theory. Other uh, theories do have other like explanations. But uh, uh, um, as we said, like uh, we have to come to terms with the fact that there is no easy answer to this. And even Kant, because he will be in the center of our discussion, says uh, after he has explained his after he has given his solution he for example also says like that his explanation is quite dark like dunkel uh, and what, is he, that the word in, you said the word in german then dunkel it sounds like the english word dark is that is that the same yeah, yeah. Thing? right opaque hard to uh, little light about the subject is that right and he even oh. says is there is there a lighter uh, explanation is there even a more comprehensible explanation because my explanation, you might find it dark, you might find it very difficult to understand, Gosh. but I, I couldn't even find anything better than the one I have presented to you as his like solution. So, uh, um, which is to say that the theories do grapple with this question. Mm -hmm. But um, another, maybe to give another example, what might be, um, what is pertained by this by the question of causality like the discipline of logic because aristotle said like natural necessity he basically equated natural necessity to logical necessity and this was a valid basis for demonstrative syllogisms in his understanding and occasionalism actually demolished this idea completely and paved it the way for modern philosophy in this way so it is said that hume couldn't have existed in this manner if there was not any occasionalist questioning in the first place. Indeed. So, and another very important topic, which will play a central role in our discussion as well, is the topic of the possibility and predictability of sciences. This is the topic in which Kant tries to overcome Hume, uh, um, but like the, the connection is very obvious, like just to, like in order to remember maybe uh, um, just a traditional defini definition of knowledge, uh, true justified belief, right? Wahrer gerechtfertigter Glaube. It's, I think, in, in German, I think it's actually in every language more or less the same. So uh, uh, um, in Arabic, we say, So it's basically the same. We have two components. Like it, is, it has to be true and it has to be justified. Justified means you have to have reasons. And this is basically causality. And therefore, Mustafa Sabri, by the way, says, like when he talks about the principle of causality, he says, and all sciences, let's say, are grounded on, on, on the principle of sufficient reason, on the principle of causality. Because knowledge is to know something with its reason. Mm. So the connection is actually quite obvious. Mm. And uh, to sum this up, uh, like the point is, 
we have very compelling reasons to have a clear opinion about the topic of causality and also Sabref and they had a clear stance on this. And maybe the most important reason was that he, that he was an Asharite theologian and uh, this kind of rationalist tradition considers first principles um, like the principle of sufficient reason or the principle of non-contradiction to be the foundation of human knowledge mm. because they are epistemological realists and the unconditional ex acceptance of these kind of laws of thought, as they are called, um, constitute an indispensable precondition for the possibility of science in general and, obviously, for metaphysics as a science, which is the question at stake. Can, um, can I just add uh, a footnote here? I don't want to digress as a subject uh, at all, but I just want to say perhaps an observation uh, uh, of mine. Um, there is certain knowledge, Islamically speaking, of things without sufficient reason given from our point of view, that nevertheless we accept as certain and true and real knowledge. For example, mm -hmm. we, we are told uh, that um, the existence of angels, the day of judgment, uh, the unseen, the gaib, that we, uh, and this is this is certain knowledge. Uh, Yaqeen, mm -hmm. in the beginning of Surah Baqarah in the Quran, talks about, you know, that this book is for those uh, uh, that, that have certainty about the unseen. So that mm -hmm. there, there are vast areas of actual knowledge uh, of, mm -hmm. of the unseen, uh, mm -hmm. That are not uh, open to questions of causality uh, and 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 so on, but we simply take them on trust, if that's the right word, because they come from revelation. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, I, I don't want to digress at all from what you're saying. I just want to kind of just mention that category of knowledge, mm -hmm. which is not open to this kind of rational discourse, rationalistic discourse and. Mm -hmm. Sedation in that way. There are many other examples, like you know, why do Muslims pay a certain number of rakah in you know Maghrib prayer rather than Fajr prayer, and so on. Mm -hmm. we don't know why, but the, 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 these are the, the given realities uh, the, the, based on God's will, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, just as a quick addition, the category you have mentioned regarding angels and the day of judgment and any other metaphysical reality, they are actually called in Kalamic, like in, in the Kalamic terminology, um, they are called um, Sam'iyyat, so things we have heard and things we have to believe in. Um, yet, and that's, I think, a very important uh, distinction to make because the Kalamic tradition has an integrative understanding or like integrationist understanding sorry about religion and reason so there's nothing in religion which is logically inconceivable or uncomprehensible even if we don't have like empirical sciences or any other tool to access that knowledge uh, the things we are believing are still logically reasonable things Mm -hmm. And in this case, uh, um, it's not something absurd, not at all. And um, their truthfulness is actually established by the truthfulness of Scripture. That would be the Kalamic way of dealing with things, saying that because the Quran is true, all the things that is contended, like co that, the con that the Quran contains, uh, are also true. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but to come back to the topic, because the principle of causality is such central, Sabri perceives Kant's radical restriction of this very principle 
to the appearances, let's say to the physical world for now, mm-hmm. as an acute danger to metaphysics and especially to the cosmological argument, as we know. So in other words, like the possibility of metaphysics is also tied to the question of causality, since Kant is known for having destroyed traditional metaphysics. And Sabri sees that and says something like, this game is basically not over. And I, I just want to stress here, sorry to interrupt again, but I, I used to think until I knew better that Kant uh, was an atheist. Uh, he, he, he certainly wasn't an atheist. And mm-hmm. uh, he mentions in the Critique of Pure Reason and elsewhere, he definitely believed in God and he had his own reasons to believe in the existence of a transcendent mind independent deity. Um, but it's just in particularly in the critical pure reason, the traditional arguments adduced by people like St. Thomas Aquinas and the Catholic tradition and, and uh, going back, of course, to Aristotle before him, mm-hmm. those particular arguments, the ontological argument or cosmological argument and so on, they are critiqued and seem to be wanting. But that doesn't mean he's an atheist. He's not. He believes in God in the traditional sense. Um, yeah. he, he might not have done. There were uh, contemporaries of his who were apparently atheists, uh, enlightenment thinkers, although there weren't many of them. Um, Hume, perhaps although you might disagree, perhaps I think he is an atheist, but um, so mm-hmm. there were people, he, he did have that pop, that option philosophically if he needed to find uh, uh, allies, but he chose to remain a theist, very much so. Yes, and that's actually a very important point because this is one of the driving forces of Kant's, Kant's theoretical philosophy, uh, namely his the rescue of moral values. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, um, and there is a kind, as you have like implied, there's a kind of discrepancy between Kant's self-depiction, self-understanding, and his reception, mm. because he's to be yeah. known to have paved the way for, let's say, quite atheistic understandings. And Sabri sees that and is actually wants to, like, basically grounds even some, uh, let's say, um, strategic arguments um, against the followers of Kant in Egypt mm. by saying Kant was actually not an atheist as you are right. while you are constantly referring to him. So uh, he, he sees that and wants tries to mobilize this argument for his, for his, own, for, for his own intentions. So, um, but I would say let's do a cut here and uh, I think that's enough of a philosophical context right. and maybe uh, a few remarks would be also quite helpful regarding the historic background regarding Sabri's intellectual biography. Yeah, so, who, so uh, Sabri Effendi, who, wh- when, when was he born? Where was he born? Uh, when did he die? And who was he? <laughs> so uh, Sabri Effendi was born in 1869 in Tokat, uh, that's in north central Anatolia, today's Turkey and studied, start, started to study there and in Kayseri, which is also in Anatolia, and then moved to Istanbul. And it goes without saying that he was highly successful in mastering all the Islamic disciplines, and especially the rational science, logic and kalam, mm-hmm. and usul fiqh, so the so-called aqliyat, so much so that um, the famous scholar of that time, uh, Ahmed Asim Efendi, who was one of his main teachers and who was the scholar of, responsible for the famous Huzur Dersleri, which I will come back in a second, uh, um, like wanted to have him as a member of his family and married him to his own daughter. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, but just to quickly um, uh, um, mention what the Huzur Dersleri 
uh, like they are called, I think, the Imper Imperial Presence Lectures in English, institutionalized in 1758. And uh, this is actually, if not the most scholarly, like most prestigious scholarly circle in the Ottoman Empire. Mm. The most known and the most representative 100 scholars of the empire are called in Ramadan to discuss religious matters in the presence of the Sultan, and therefore they are called uh, presence lectures. Uh, uh, and uh, Sabri marries at the age of 23, the daughter of the scholar who is responsible for this very gathering, meaning he is the one who is responsible for deciding who is actually like a senior scholar in this whole empire, uh, which is quite telling, obviously. Uh, but before that, in 1890, uh, Sabri obtains the so-called Ruusu Tedris, uh, when he's like uh, uh, 21, this is the like highest certificate for Islamic education, and he becomes a lecturer in the famous Fatih Mosque in the Sahne Saman Mosque uh, in Istanbul. Which, which uh, I, I was in, a, uh, I think, just over a month ago, a couple of months ago. Yes. So. Yes. Stunning, stunning uh, building. If, if you've not been there, do go to Istanbul and visit some of the world's most amazing buildings. Uh, mm -hmm. Right, right. And throughout his like teaching, Sabri gives more than 50 ijazat. And at 28, he himself joins this, this circle, actually. So, and he's the like, youngest scholar in this very circle and still is able to attract the attention of, of the Sultan, who is at that time none other than the famous Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Uh, and he want, Sultan Abdul Hamid wants to appreciate the scholarship of this young man and takes him as, a, as the caretaker of his private library. So, and the list of academic successes, like the positions, the medals, the publications, the societies, goes on and on. Um, maybe one last thing that should be briefly mentioned is that in 1918, Sabri becomes, when he's like around 50, becomes the chief or the main professor of the Suleimaniya Darul Hadith Madrasa which is, in terms of religious education, just the highest institute in the whole empire. And that's also the time, like, I think a few months after that, he also will become the Sheikh al-Islam, uh, which is an official title, means that he's the chief jurisconsult and the, let's say, most authoritative scholar in the whole empire, which is to say that this is basically the, let's say, one of the best products this intellectual environment could have produced in that time. So to clarify, the Ottoman Empire, of course, existed at that time, and it came to an end in 1923 when uh, what is called today the Republic of Turkey came into being. We're dealing here with the uh, the political entity, uh, the Ottoman Empire, that preceded the contemporary Turkish Republic. Right. And Sabri's life is closely tied to this transition as well, because he has a second identity, which makes him a complicated figure, namely his political career. So next to being a scholar, a librarian, and a journalist, um, he also um, will get involved into politics and will become a parliamentarian. And um, he will get into a lot of trouble. But... He reminds me of another figure, similar and different, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, who uh, <laughs> also uh, was similarly astonishingly brilliant from extremely young age, uh, highly regarded by many of his scholarly contemporaries, 
um, and uh, but also became a, a political figure, very much so with the Mughal invasion and so on, and got into trouble as well with the authorities. Um, but uh, but anyway, a complex figure politically, religiously. Uh, there are differences, of course, with Effendi, but nevertheless, th- th- these two figures remind me of each other in some ways. Yeah, and. I mean, it's always a difficult relationship between the ulama and the umara, as you say, right? Like the between the politicians and the scholars. Mm. And it is not necessarily very important to our discussion. Uh, um, therefore, I would love to maybe skip um, this mm. identity of his. Uh, maybe to mention one thing, uh, because a lot of people don't know this actually, like Although Mustafa Kemal Pasha, more known as, as Atatürk, with whom Sabri is, amongst others, at odds with, uh, grandson... Sorry, just to make clear to everyone, he's a founder, or understood popularly to be the founder of modern Turkey. Right. Uh, a controversial figure in some circles. But anyway, he, he's, if you go to Turkey, go to Istanbul, other cities, you'll see his image, statues, pictures all over the place. Because he's... Of this republic, yes, right. And Mustafa Kemal Pasha himself granted Sabri a pardon in 1938, but still Sabri refused to come back. He was in exile in that time and stayed in Egypt until his death. And this was actually also the time in which he produced his major works, above all, Mowqif uh, al this one here, which is also our reference work, right. and which is basically a volume of like a four-volume critique of mostly current Islamic and European theological and philosophical trends. And this is precisely what I care about, at least. Like, rather than Mustafa Sabri Efendi as a politically controversial figure, I'm more interested in the traditionally trained Asharite theologian. And this second identity of his is clearly overshadowed by his first one, which is a shame because he has much to offer. And therefore, it should be as unproblematic to study his Kalam scholarship as the scholarship of any other theologian. And we should be able to differentiate between his politics and his scholarship, as we do with a lot of figures, by the way, like just to give a very controversial name. I mean, Luther, um, highly regarded theologian, has quite interesting to say the least, uh, uh, like stances on Muslims and Jews, right? Whenever an academic says the word interesting in association with a figure, you know this is a, a massive euphemism. Martin <laughs> <laughs> Luther, of course, is famous for kickstarting the Reformation in Germany, which spread everywhere else. Um, and he's highly revered still um, uh, amongst uh, many, many Christians in the United States and elsewhere. Indeed, a whole church was founded in his name, the Lutheran Church. Um, but he was also incredibly politically active and he incited uh, or encouraged the, the political powers of the day, the princes, to put down the peasants' revolt at that time, resulting in great bloodshed. Uh, and also he was viciously anti-Semitic. And that's not that's even an understatement. Uh, if you read what he says about the Jewish people, it's quite yeah. extraordinarily vicious and nasty. And indeed, uh, the National Socialists in Germany uh, cited him in justification for their own attitudes towards the Jews. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I, mean, I think the point you are making, despite his forays into anti-Semitism and political reactionary uh, campaigning, um, 
you can still look at Martin Luther in terms of his theology as a Christian theologian and as a thinker, as a reformer in his own right. His biblical commentaries, his theology, his preaching, his hymn making are mm -hmm. taken on their own terms today without any feeling of awkwardness. Oh, well, you know, he, he was a vicious anti-Semite and, you know, he, he was instrumental in killing lots of peasants. Mm -hmm. You can do that. And that's quite acceptable, it seems, in the West. You can have this compartmentalization where mm -hmm. you kind of rack it out, these, this stuff. So you, you're saying, okay, we do that with Martin Luther. Maybe we can, I'm not in any way imputing anything horrible, of course, to Sabri Effendi, but right. we can compartmentalize his mm -hmm. life thought in a way that has a precedent. Mm -hmm. Maybe a kind of remarkable anecdote. Um, in one interreligious dialogue we had here in Cologne and Cologne, uh, um, like the rabbi turned to the Protestant theologian, uh, saying to him, and the context, well, the context was basically the Nazi regime and how the church has behaved in that very time. Like he actually was quite clear, saying to him that you did, like uh, the Nazis didn't misuse Luther, they only have used them. Yes, uh, they, 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 they're delighted, uh, the, the Nazi newspaper delighted in quoting great sermons mm -hmm. of Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. If you Google it, I'm not encouraged, I don't want to dwell on Martin Luther, but if you Google Martin Luther and the Jews, uh, you can read his stuff in translation. It is extraordinarily vicious uh, and uh, as unparalleled. And, mm -hmm. and he drew on early fathers of the church, Chrysostom and others who are also viciously anti-Semite as well. Anti-Semitism mm -hmm. is a Christian virus, historically. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it has infected other people and other religions to some extent, but it, mm -hmm. it is a Christian virus. And um, it's only after, of course, the Holocaust that mm -hmm. Christians have begun to uh, take this seriously as a problem. Uh, and the reckoning has happened, of course, since 1945. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. a version from... Much yeah. more my, my point is basically to say, like, we are talking about Sabri's theology on blogging theology, and that should be perfectly fine. That's more than enough for me. Es especially since, to be perfectly frank, like if we are able to discuss, discuss Kant's like philosophy, despite his disgusting attitude towards, let's say, 90% of humanity, we are even more entitled to engage with Sabri's theological legacy even if his political one is somewhat complicated. I mean, so just a final point, I, I, I just I can't resist this comment. We live in an age where, where we deplatform people, uh, we censor people, uh, we uh, destroy people's lives based on uh, statements they may, may have made on Twitter or in books and newspapers in the past. But we're not really yet deplatforming Martin Luther for his vicious anti-Semitism. We're not yet deplatforming, de uh, de de uh, uh, you mentioned Kant, who's still highly regarded, despite his explicitly racist views. He wrote a whole book about his racism. Um, we're not deplatforming de Darwin, if you read The Descent of Man, uh, Charles Darwin, the English naturalist. Mm -hmm. He has very racist ideas as well. So, that, you know, if we were to start deplatforming systematically through the Western tradition, <laughs> Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be many people's left standing. We we, we have a, there could be an empty room with nothing there. Um, it, it's just the it's just if we apply this rigorously through our intellectual tradition, uh, but by our I mean the West, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be very few figures left who will be even able to read anymore. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure if we go down that path, of course, it's because right. we, need to be more, we need to be more grown up about life and see the good and the bad and accept the good, and not accept the bad. 
um, despite our present culture's obsession with deplatforming uh, and destroying people because of the remarks they may have made. Mm-hmm. And, uh, political broadcast, sorry. Back to you. <laughs> no worries at all. Um, and like, just to talk about Sabri's theology or about yeah. his work, it's exactly what I want to do now. Maybe as a last point, just introduce this very work, the motivation behind it, its structure, its sources, and the discussion topics with Kanso that we have like a good set stage for our next and last um, meeting. So the full name is موقف العقل والعلم والعالم من رب العالمين وعباده المرسلين. It's alam means world and not alim, which I have heard as well, which basically means scholar. But the whole title means something like the position of reason, knowledge, and the world in regards to the Lord of the world and his divinely sent servants which gives its content away. There is a kind of triangular relationship going on, namely between reason, religion, and science. And Sabri wants to shed light on that from an Islamic perspective. And his aim is to anchor the relationship between these three, let's say, realities in the Kalam paradigm uh, and wants to show what kind of rightful role every aspect can play And um, he has a kind of, let's say, integrationist model, basically a very Ghazalian approach. Again, if we remember Ghazali's famous work, which is called Qanun al-Ta'wil, that's a kind of epistle where he has also this uh, like integrationist understanding, meaning that he says uh, uh, um, revelation can never contradict reason. And Sabri just adds one thing. Oh, namely empirical science and wants to show what empirical science is apt for and what not. And maybe that might be also interesting to note, he's therefore not necessarily very happy with the Christian paradigm, which obviously has a kind of independent model between religious truth and uh, um, reason, like rational truth. And there, like somebody himself was prompted to write this work by the intellectually challenging environment he found in Egypt, having witnessed the growing positivism, materialism, and uh, thus atheism in Egypt's public and intellectual life, he concluded that the postulated dichotomies between faith, knowledge, and reason could be largely traced back to the detrimental influence of European philosophy, and especially of Kant's philosophy, mm-hmm. which he then seeks to combat in Mawqif al-Aql. But uh, uh, um, it is obviously not restricted to Kant. Actually, Mustafa Sabri Efendi, his main interlocutors are not Western philosophers, but the Egyptian intellectuals and the Egyptian scholars. And because the Egyptian modernists were drawing on Western philosophy, he saw the requirement to engage with it. But over the course of his studies of Western philosophy, it became an endeavor of itself. So, so he, didn't, he didn't read Kant in the original German, I understand. He, re- he read Kant uh, in, in Arabic as he was discussed and presented in, uh, in Arabic texts. Right, right. Sabri Efendi, a new Arabic, Turkish and Persian, which was like the basic, let's say, education of these, uh, of these uh, scholars. And he didn't know any European language, which basically was 
problem insofar as he couldn't access Kant directly or any other European philosopher, but um, he had, let's say, secondary sources in Arabic and Turkish and was uh, drawing on them. So another explicit reason, as Sabri mentions, why he has written this work is to defend Kalam and to demonstrate its merits against all the anti-Kalam trends, like uh, a problem that we still have today, I would say, like a kind of challenging issue. Also, I have to mention, like, the attitudes of today are a little bit more complex. So we see maybe people who are not very happy with the Kalam tradition while um, adopting maybe some Kalam methods from Christian philosophers, but that's another issue. Um, as for its influence, I think it's a bit difficult to assess. Like the influence is difficult to assess because Mawqiful Aql was banned in Turkey until the late 1980s, and therefore it is understudied in Turkish academia. We have a few PhD theses, but they are more general on Sabri's thought, uh, um, but nothing concretely on his engagement with Immanuel Kant, for example. Mm. Yet, from what I can see, um, what made his famous work like also known amongst traditional circles is that major scholars have popularized it. For example, Sheikh uh, Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda, Sheikh Ramadan al-Bouti, who were giants in their fields, or even today, Sheikh Said Fouda, or Sheikh Hamza al-Bakri, and Sheikh Usama al-Azhari, all of them used to and used to refer to that work, means, uh, which is to say that, and that's at least my impression, that it is somewhat known by larger groups, mm. yet it hasn't been extensively studied. And there's actually another reason why uh, this is the case. It is also not that easy to engage with this work in so far as every research faces a few challenges, like every few research done, done, uh, done on First, the language. So it is a bit unusual because it's not always very idiomatic. Sabri being a Turk and writing in Arabic is actually obviously something that has implications for his writing itself. Uh, but also like just the abstract nature of the content itself is obviously a challenge. And Sabri himself is quite succinct in his references. Um, when he refers to his own tradition, he says, this is the way how, uh, this is the way the mutakallimin will do this, or this is the way how it is in the Kalam tradition and things like that. But you just have to know what he's referring to. So you have to have an understanding of the Kalam tradition itself. And it's, it's something to Kant. I mean, Kant is, is if, uh, placing himself in a dialogue, an ongoing dialogue with right, right, like, right. like David Hume. It, uh, Rene Descartes, of course, you know, he, he's not just, you just can't parachute into uh, mm -hmm. I don't think. Well, certainly not for the critic of pure reason. In a mm -hmm. way, you can do, I think, with, say, uh, um, Plato's uh, Socratic dialogues. You can read Euthyphro or, uh, mm -hmm. or whatever um, and understand them on their own terms. They're quite intelligible and accessible. But can't you can't do that. Can't, you right. can't. Right. Can't. <laughs> right. No and, yeah. That's mm. correct. That's correct. And it's actually always a question in like Kant scholarship, whom Kant has 
as an as an opponent in this very question, for example, or what is Kant referring to when he says this and that, and uh, the same applies more or less to Sabri uh, in some in some ways at least. But he's also sometimes a little bit succinct in his critiques. He says he has this general assumption, and then the second one, and the third one is actually not reconcilable with the first two ones. So. And then you basically have to understand what he wants to um, show you or what he wants to tell you. A second topic which makes the whole endeavor a little bit complicated is the structure. It's not a classical Kalam manual. It is not very systematic as we used to have it um, with regards to other Kalam manuals. It contains a few repetitions and uh, therefore... Um, the work is at times quite laborious to read, uh, um, which is not very surprising because I think the work s somehow reflects the structure, like the structure reflects, or better to say, the structure reflects its turbulent times, mm. the turbulent context in which Sabri has written this very work. Uh, so one big task is to systematize Sub, like Sabri's edifice of thought, because in the final analysis, we are talking about a kind of refutation by an angry man against a whole list of thinkers. He has, so he has a lot of intellectual fronts and is therefore quite polemical and apologetic. It reminds me so much of Ibn Taymiyyah. Again, Ibn Taymiyyah was not systematic, I don't mm -hmm. think. Uh, he wrote piecemeal ad hoc, you know, the systematizer, our, our mutual friend, uh, Professor Carl um, Scherf, is a, has attempted to systematize Ibn Taymiyyah's thought. But Ibn Taymiyyah had many fronts. He was arguing, polemicizing against people uh, yeah. in terms of great political emergency, uh, mm -hmm. social dislocation, invasion, uh, the breakdown of society. Again, as a similar thing that happens uh in uh, Sabri Effendi's time. So the parallels, again, are quite interesting. And Kant, though, was a great systematizer. He spent, as we know, his oh. whole life in Conisberg, never went anywhere, never did anything, apparently, particularly. Uh, but constructed these incredible edifices of, of thought, these architectural wonders, critical mm -hmm. purities and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. Great systematizer. Uh, again, unlike, but a, a, very, a very different political and social context of great stability, uh, and, and great, um, you know, so very different. Yeah, by the way, Kant himself calls his own approach or his own, like, let's say, um, yeah, approach as architectonic means, like, he calls it like this, literally. Uh, and, um, and one thing that maybe should be noted, even if they have quite a few similarities with regards to their, let's say, biographies. Sabri and Ibn Taymiyyah are not necessarily on the same page, especially oh, with understanding of I was just, I was, yes, uh, yeah, absolutely yeah. correct. I'm suggesting that anyway, obviously one was Ashra, another one was not exactly mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. right, of course. But I was just saying in terms of the biography and the social political context dynamics, the mm -hmm. non-systematic nature of their thought and the sheer brilliance of their intellects, mm -hmm. I can't help I'm just making comparisons within the Islamic tradition. Right, right, right. Which is a which is a very, I think, insightful one at the same time. And uh, we ha already have mentioned like how Sabri has accessed um, Western philosophy. This is a third point. So, um, and I have to confess, in the beginning, it made me suspicious, like whether he did not misunderstand many things. But Sabri Effendi seems to have. I would say 
a well-informed overview of the Western philosophers through his sources and a group a good grasp of of their of their positions. It's maybe not very detailed in every aspect, but there was not one instance, not one passage where I had the impression that he just got it wrong. This right. applies to Descartes, to Berkeley, to Locke, to Mill, to Hume, to Kant, and also to August Comte, who's also uh, like a main interlocutor of his. So he understands their positions and is able to locate them in the grand scheme of things, which is his big achievement. Um, yet, and I have to say that uh, very explicitly, it is still not the case that Mustafa Sabri Efendi has basically given us a full-fledged account on every aspect. The work remains to be systematized, and I would be more than happy if one of all the people I know, or even those I don't know, who are much more senior than me in scholarship and wisdom and who are much more qualified than me. You're too modest, you're too modest. Why, why not maybe one day yourself? Maybe as a corporation, who knows, but uh, I just wanted to mention that this is a very um, big job um, to do and it needs a lot of, let's say, scholarship and a lot of, let's say, familiarity with both traditions and requires... Um, accordingly someone just like you in other words yes <laughs> i'm not sure what that's <laughs> but it needs to be uh, like the point is it needs to be done especially yes. since there's no doubt that this very work is truly much more substantial than everything that has been written in the name of let's say the like uh, the movement of ilmul kalamul jadid as it is called the new rational theology by figures like Shibli Normani and Sir Said Ahmed Khan and Muhammad Abdu and Rishid Rida and the like. Like the list is quite long. In fact, Mustafa Sabri Efendi is a vocal critic of some of these names, dedicating <clears throat> a considerable amount of his magnum opus to their inconsistencies. Right. Which is obviously a very thankless task. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And doesn't, it doesn't necessarily get, get, get you lots of friends either. Like perhaps another person I just mentioned, Ibn Taymiyyah, who was very keen to point out the inconsistencies <laughs> in other people's thought and very popular with them for doing so for some reason. Indeed. And, but as an aside, I think that that's a quite interesting point. Hmm. Um, we see a kind of imbalance of research done in academia, like Abdu and his students, like Rida, for example, are thoroughly studied. But very few people are even aware that only a few years after Abdu, it was nobody other than the Sheikh al-Islam of the Ottoman Empire himself dedicating basically half of his life <laughs> criticizing their positions. And it is not the case that Mustafa Sabri Efendi was a nobody, not at all. Like he was well known in Turkey and in Egypt. He mm. was he was teaching at Ezehar, for example, mm. and uh, um, people were following his writings. But still, it is a kind of distorted picture we have uh, nowadays in academia regarding their, uh, the research done on these names. And um, I have to confess that even despite coming from the same culture, I got introduced to his works years and years later after I became familiar with Afghani, Abdul and Rida. And I'm even someone who appreciates, like, let's say, and tries to benefit 
from traditional Islamic circles. And I'm very thankful to my teacher, Mardan Gunesh, who has introduced me to this topic. But uh, um, it is like quite interesting that Sabri is not that known as he is supposed to be, I would say. Can I just ask a, a question about your studies at Oxford very briefly? Um, is uh, Sabri Effendi, obviously he'll be known about in academic circles in Oxford, but is he someone who is engaged with, is a serious thinker and taught and ex explained to, to students at all? Or? I'm not sure whether he's that known. The first, right. That's the first point. The second one, I know that um, a historian actually has done a PhD on Sabri and uh, his work is going to be published, I think, even in November this year wow. uh, by the name of Andrew Hammond. But this is exactly the problem I was like referring to. It's I'm not sure what the like publication con contains, like what's what the send what what um, he will say about Sabri. But it is again historic perspective and seems to maybe I can imagine that it. Um, um, puts Sabri's political identity in the center without necessarily engaging much with his uh, traditional scholarship. But I'm happy uh, to to read it and to have a look at it. So, but he's obviously not a philosopher or theologian like Andrew Hammond. He basically is an historian and has a I, I can imagine a very specific access to Sabri. Himself. Yeah, which would be his political dimension then, rather than his, yeah, okay. Yeah, might be the case. Mm -hmm. So, but the point is, like, Sabri Effendi basically engages with Kant's philosophy with a certain depth, and he says also, he, he says that he says, darsiha means that he has engaged with him uh, quite, um, with, like, with, with a kind of certain depth, and knowledge of Kant is mediated like at least mostly mediated by an Ottoman translation of the French history of philosophy that has that is written by uh, Paul Janet in 1887. Uh, and it is sufficient to mention at this point that Sabri was familiar with most of Kant's essential, essential uh, philosophical assumptions. And uh, um, we have quite a few, like quite a list of explicit topics in which Sabri critically engages with Kant, like topics like the Copernican turn, the discrepancy between Kant's own claims and his reception, as you said, uh, Kant's meta, like distinction of meta and form, or obviously the discussion on first principles, the discussion on the infinite regress, like Tesaisul, as it is called in Arabic, Sabri's uh, phenomenalist uh, reading of Kantian ontology, Kant's transcendental idealism, and so on and so forth. So we have. Will you be tackling these in some uh, in some depth in the third? Right, session, right, right. Otherwise, I will be asking you now about the Copernican Revolution that Kant thought he unveiled. Now, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I, think it's, I just find it so very interesting. But I'm going to uh, delay this until the next time. Right. I just wanted to show basically that Sabri is aware, like what is right. going on, and has quite a few different things to discuss with Kant. And above all, obviously, all three proofs for God, like the ontological, the cosmological, and the teleological argument, and even the moral argument that, that um, Kant has established, all of them are subject to discussion in Sabri's work. 
Excellent. Of course, the moral argument was Kant's own argument. Uh, right. One of his choices of God, even though he's critiquing the, the famous arguments, the ontological. Mm -hmm. and the, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so Kant did have arguments for the existence of God that he himself advocated, uh, contrary to his reception, as you put it, um, mm -hmm. of his thought, the impression of what he was about in mm -hmm. the Kantian age in Western philosophy. Mm -hmm. But, and that's, I think, an important point, there are also a lot of other topics where we do know both positions and just can complete the whole conversation that could not be continued um, due to the lack of sources and maybe even time. The right. best example is the uh, issue of free will. Sabri has a, has a separate work on this called and we know also Kant's account on free will from different, like, from different writings. And actually, not even only this, but all four antinomies of Kant um, can be discussed from Sabri's perspective just by saying or just by looking at the very specific discussions. Uh, um, and Kant's critique and Sabri's defense of occasionalism in particular would be another interesting discussion and a bit more ambitious. And I would love to con um, conclude with this. Um, the conception of space and time is very important to Kant's philosophy, and Sabri only implicitly engages with it. So the, this um, is found in, in is discussed in Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, this incredible right. work, uh, where he discusses the nature of space and time and our apprehension of it and so on. So it's very important. Fascinating subject. Mm -hmm. But the important point here is there are a lot of, let's say, competing interpretations in Kant's time. And just to give an overview and to conclude with this, like we know, for example, that Cartesians, especially Descartes, has an accidental understanding of space and time, as far as I remember. But more important for us is like um, the Kalamic account on space of space and time that is relational, like Leibniz's account. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and um, with a notable exception, we know that Fakhreddin al-Razi the famous mutakallim um, um, seems to have an absolute understanding of space and time like Newton. That will be the third alternative, so accidental, relational, and absolute. And then Kant, who is operating with the Newtonian physics, obviously, as everybody else does in that very time, comes with a very radical solution and says that space and time are basically subjective. They wow. are pure forms of intuition, which means that space and time, it like as things of themselves, even don't exist. And this is one of the like most radical claims he makes and uh, something that has to be dealt with if somebody wants to systematize this discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe a good point to stop and more on all of this will be subject of our third round. So just to uh, summarize in the third round in the third video of this uh, trio of videos, um, we'll be looking in, in much more substantial depth in the actual philosophy itself, these key concepts, occasionalism, causality, and so on, uh, and Kant's thought and um, Sabri Effendi's uh, dialogue and critique of Kant uh, and so forth. So, uh, but, Speaking for myself, this promises to be the most interesting of the three, uh, actually getting into the the, uh, the actual content itself in some detail. So very much looking forward to that, Amir. And uh, uh, again, I thank you for your valuable time and your expertise. 
uh, it's absolutely fascinating that there's this interaction between this interconnectedness between East and West, uh, Eastern uh, thought and Western thought is underappreciated clearly in, in, in our intellectual, uh, intellectual history. And you're uh, making these contributions on YouTube uh, is possibly unique. I'm, I don't know, but it's certainly extremely valuable. And I really do appreciate it, Amir. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure for me as well. Thank you very much. Until next time, until the third time. Thank you. Yeah.